Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing two drug smuggling cases. First, we will cover Chappelle Corby, who was caught smuggling marijuana into Bali in 2005, resulting in a life sentence. Then the Bali Nine, where nine people were convicted of smuggling heroin out of Indonesia, resulting in two members being put to death by firing squad. Before I jump in, reminder to follow me on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod. I don't post all the time, but I am always hanging out over there. So please do send me a message. I'm always replying. Um, And yeah, please do give me a rating on whatever you happen to be listening on at the moment. So yeah, it's, this is a, I find this very interesting. Obviously the podcast is when it goes wrong and I don't really know how drug smuggling can go right because surely if it's succeeding, then something's going wrong, right? Uh, So is this actually the other way around? Is this actually really when it goes right because people were caught? But we will see um, as we get into it. These two cases were just so intense and they were so like dominated the news especially when I was growing up in New Zealand like I remember Chappelle Corby I remember the Bali Nine so strongly because they were all Australians so I'm I'm kind of interested as to like whether they were covered elsewhere in the world whether they were you know people people elsewhere knew about them because I'm probably not probably not to the extent that we did and so yeah it was really interesting going back and like digging into it because I think that I hadn't really like I was quite young, obviously, at the time. Yeah, you, you just don't appreciate the facts of everything until you, you go back and look at it in more detail. So we're going to start with Chappelle. Uh, so Chappelle Corby. Um, and so Chappelle grew up in the Gold Coast. Uh, she was one of a family of six. And just as a bit of background, she she worked, um, she did some beauty school training and then eventually started working doing beauty and then hospitality. In 1998, when she was 21, she moved to Japan and married a man over there. But um, unfortunately, the marriage only lasted a couple of years. And throughout all of this time, uh, Chappelle would often visit Bali. It was somewhere that she would go on holiday, somewhere that she would go and stop off on the way places. Uh, And one of her older sisters uh, called Mercedes met and married someone from Bali and she moved over there. So Chappelle had more reason to go to Bali a bit more often. And again, if you're not from that part of the world, Bali is part of Indonesia And it is a very popular place for Australians to go on holiday and Kiwis uh, because it is like pretty affordable, you know, amazing weather, uh, good surfing, good yoga. Um, So it's one of those places that you like constantly see on Instagram being kind of where all the digital nomads go. And actually, I really want to go there. (laughs) I haven't been. I've been to Jakarta, but I haven't been to Bali. But we're hopefully maybe going to go next year on the way over there. So in October 2004, she was aged 27 and Chappelle and two friends flew to Bali and they were living in Brisbane. So she flew from Brisbane down to Sydney um, and then uh, transferred onto the flight to Bali, Denpasar Airport. And I always forget that Denpasar is Bali, but guarantee when you are at Heathrow, you will see flights to Denpasar. Anyway, so once she touched down in Bali, as she passed through customs, uh, Corby was stopped for a search. um, And in that search, officers found 4.2 kilos of marijuana in her bodyboard bag. So she had a bag which was kind of carrying like a little, you know, like a bodyboard, like a little mini surfboard. And it 
was this very large package that was on top of the on top of the bag in like a vacuum sealed bag. It wasn't particularly like hidden in any way. It was just in the bag, kind of tucked inside it. When I've heard, obviously, I've heard about this in the past. But 4.2 kilos is really big. And I saw the photos of it and I was like, oh, that's so much bigger than I expected it to be. I don't know what I was expecting, but it is like big enough that like you probably would notice it from the outside even. Um, And so this is kind of where like a bit of debate came in as to what actually happened. And this like then tied a lot to to her guilt with um, I did the bunny ears, not helpful. Um, question, you know, guilt question mark, um, is that the customs officer said that he, that she tried to stop him from opening the bag and was really like shady about it and was like, oh no, don't look in there type thing to kind of like indicating she knew it, the drugs were there and she didn't want him to find them. But Chappelle's story is the opposite of that. She's basically like, no, I was totally open. Like, I was very happy for them to search the bag. Like, I didn't I didn't think I was doing anything wrong because she didn't know the drugs were in there. Uh, and so she had no, like, worry about it. She was happy for someone to search it. And that's kind of where these things differ. And obviously that, a lot of Corby's case will rest on, did she know whether the drugs were there or not? Um, and it's clearly not ex- like not agreed at this point. And so Corby requested the CCTV to kind of prove this interaction, but it was never provided. So we never have CCTV. We never have witnesses from this encounter. It was all just kind of one person against the other. Uh, but yes, at this point, uh, Corby was arrested and charged with drug smuggling. And so she, yeah, well, she was arrested um, and then she uh, went to prison and awaited her trial. And then eventually her trial um, took place uh, and at the, sorry, something just fell over. Hopefully you didn't hear that. But yeah, so eventually her trial took took place and throughout the whole court case, Corby was really insistent that she didn't know the drugs were in a bag, uh, that she didn't know that they were there, that they had been planted by someone else and that was that was what was happened. She was a very un, unwilling, unknowing drug mule. And so the theory that they came up with or that actually happened, whichever side you're on, uh, was that Corby was caught up in some interstate drug smuggling within Australia itself. Uh, by baggage handlers. So the the thought was that the drugs could have been put into her bag in Brisbane and the idea being that then when when the bag got to Sydney, uh, whoever was there could then take the drugs out of the bag uh, and then and then take them and and use them as they as they will. And so that was kind of a thought that was put forward and had been heard of before in terms of trying to move drugs around. And this is where we get to the oh God, am I going to be paranoid about my bag forevermore? Which the answer is yes after this story. Um, and so, yeah, so that that was the idea. It was that she had no idea. Someone had just put this in her bag. She didn't know about it. And so the her case, her court team offered a million dollar reward for any kind of evidence of this for something. And people did come forward. They did eventually have a man testify that he heard someone in prison say that they'd stashed drugs in a bodyboard. So the idea that it could very much happen. And there was kind of general intelligence around that this was potentially something that could have gone down. And this this is very much the the belief that Corby and her team had and was the argument that they were fighting. And so, and Corby kind of like, and her team very much tried to get more evidence. Like I said, they already tried to get the CCTV. Uh, they repeatedly asked for all the weights of the bags. So the bags had had been weighed 
as as a totality in uh, Sydney and then in Brisbane and then obviously could be weighed in totality once they were there and if it had increased by four kilos and clearly she you know she didn't put it there beforehand uh, but they refused to do that Corby also requested fingerprints be taken like on the bag and on, there was like an outer bag and then an inner bag and so to take fingerprints for that but they refused and and didn't take that forward so I think that's like what I find frustrating, whether you think she's guilty or not, I don't think she was given a fair trial or a fair prosecution either way. Uh, but yeah, Corby was given two uh, Australian QC lawyers, who are very, very senior lawyers, to represent her. But the Indonesian system is very different and the case was done in front of three judges rather than a jury or anything like that. And in her final plea, she said... I would like to say to the prosecutors, I cannot admit to a crime I did not commit. And to the judges, my life at the moment is in your hands, but I would prefer if my life was in your hearts. So she was found guilty. The judges did find her guilty following this trial. It just didn't make much sense to me because of of everything, like I said, I don't think she got a fair trial. But also, like, smuggling cannabis into Indonesia just doesn't make any actual like sense in any form and so it's not like it's very common in Indonesia it's not really a drug that you smuggle in this way it's not worth a lot of money like it just the fact that it is marijuana makes me think that it was just an interstate thing anyway so yeah so she was found guilty and then in May 2005 her trial and her sentencing was streamed on tv Uh, Corby was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in jail and a $12,000 fine, which would add six months if not paid. And there's a couple of key things here. The penalties in Indonesia are much heavier than in a lot of other countries because they really want to deter it. Second, they see drug smuggling as like you killing lots of people like by bringing those drugs in, those drugs are potentially going to go and actually like kill lots of others so that's kind of like how they phrase it when they talk about it from their point of view and the other thing was because she didn't admit it there was no there was no kind of like ability to give any leniency because she denied it completely so they basically were like well if you're gonna similar to over here if you're gonna totally deny that this take took place i'm not going to give you any clemency leniency whatever when i give you my sentence because you know you, you are still denying it but we found you guilty so yeah, so she was given 20 years, which is a lot. I mean, she was, what, 27? So yeah, that must be daunting. Um, and at the time, like I said, there was so much media coverage of this in Australia and in New Zealand and so much speculation about whether she was guilty, whether she wasn't, how she was being treated, just everything. She was just everywhere. I think probably because she was young, um, you know, she was you know, attractive. She was locked up abroad. Like it just had all the you know, all the things attached to it. And especially with being marijuana. So people in Australia and New Zealand are a bit less, you know, they don't really care that much about it. Like it isn't, it isn't legalized in either, but New Zealand just recently did a referendum and it was pretty close to becoming legalized. So, you know what I mean? It wasn't like seen as a really bad crime, I think, in Australia and New Zealand. And so therefore it just got so much media attention. 
So yeah, so following her arrest then, she tried to appeal, um, but unfortunately the process of appeals is, is obviously different again in Indonesia. And the scary thing is that not only can appeals result in reductions to your sentence, but it can result in increases as well. So you kind of really roll the dice every time you appeal. I think in, in Australia, New Zealand, UK, America, if you appeal, you're always expecting to go down. Um, but that is not the case here. So in her first appeal, she got five years taken off, so it went down to 15. Uh, but then le- at, at a later appeal, that five years was left back on. Um, and she just really wasn't able to kind of produce any further evidence or anything that would help her story or, or kind of help give, give any further mitigating evidence. So eventually, after she'd been in prison quite a few years, uh, they did end up taking five years off her sentence. And that was based on on clemency from the uh, president at the time because she had very bad mental health problems and she was really suffering. Uh, so she was, she was having a bad time with depression at the time. And so, yeah, she got five years off. And she, for her incarceration, spent her whole time at a prison called Carab. Karabokan, Karabakan prison, which is in in Bali, sometimes called Hotel K, and is quite an infamous infamous prison. It was built originally to hold three hundred people, but now holds like fifteen hundred people in it. And there's lots of like big shared large cells or wings, so there's not a lot of privacy. Uh, there's a lot of shared facilities in all accounts. Some of it isn't great. It seems to be a place where if you have money, you can pay to kind of be in a much nicer nicer part of the prison um, compared to having no money and, and not not being able to go there. And it's interesting because I listened to some podcasts about it and they made it sound really horrific, but then I watched some like YouTube documentaries on it and I was like, it doesn't look awful. Like compared, to, I've been in some UK prisons and they looked worse, like from in terms of the like Victorian teeny tiny cells and stuff like this. We'll, we'll talk about the Bali Nine, but they had some people on death row and they were like, spent their time like gardening and they have an art workshop and they all print t-shirts. You know what I mean? So it's not, I've never been, so I, I can't tell you either way, but that's what I've learned. So she, yeah, spent several, spent all of her sentence there, but she did set, spend a few stints in hospital due to her depression. Um, after nine years, Corby was released on parole but she had to do her parole in Bali. Um, so she continued to live there with her sister until 2017 when she had totally completed her sentence and was finally able to return to Australia. So yeah, a very debated story in this case. In terms of what happened after after she wrote a book, uh, which seems to be quite popular, I didn't have a chance to read it, but uh, if you're interested in it, then that's probably a good place to start. Uh, she returned back to the Gold Coast and she's become like a bit of a minor celebrity. Um, so she was on SAS Australia, which uh, the UK has a, has a version of. And she was also on, on the Australian edition of Dancing with the Stars. So yeah, has has kind of started doing a little bit of that type of thing. Right, now on to the Bali Nine. And yeah, sorry if I laughed randomly in the last bit. I was trying to do some time lapses for my Instagram and 
failing probably uh, but if you see some time lapses on instagram you'll know why that i that i managed it so anyway um stop doing that now so we can focus in and this event's kind of sadder so that makes more sense um so yeah to the barley nine and this was a very different story but it still involves drug smuggling australia bali um and it was at a very similar time so it was in april 2005 nine australians were arrested in bali for smuggling out heroin and this was six months after the Chappelle corby case so so you can see a t- similar time frame, all young Australians um, and all kind of in between Bali and Australia. So I'm going to cover the nine, but it is really hard to properly cover nine people in anything. So forgive me, some people will be covered less, um, but there is so much coverage of this out there that if you want to learn more about any of them, then you're, you definitely can. So uh, the two ringleaders in the case of the Bali Nine, uh, and these two brought the rest of the group together and were kind of responsible for getting the heroin and strapping it to the other people and, and you know, trafficking it through, uh, were Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran. And they were both Australians, so both kind of like uh, second generation Australians born in Australia, um, though I think one one was born in London. Um, but yeah, so they both lived in Sydney, grew up in Sydney, went to school there, um, and they met at a party uh, when they were both pretty young. Um, and then they both, for whatever reason, I mean, when you see interviews with them, clearly they very much just thought they were young and stupid. Uh, but for some reason, they decided to start getting involved in drugs smuggling uh they thought it would you know pay off monetarily and give them the the type of lifestyle that they really wanted and so chan worked at a catering company in sydney and it was here where he met uh three of them three of the others so renee lawrence the only uh, woman in the in the nine martin stevens and matthew norman so yeah, so Chan convinced them to come for a free trip to Bali with a task to take something back with them. Any guesses what that might thing might be? <laughs> Alongside this, those four, we then had um, Tan Duk Nguyen, who was based in Brisbane, and he had been involved in the smuggling before uh, and knew Chan and uh, Sukumaran, and he co-opted two uh, two others into the um, into the group. He co-opted Scott Rush and Michael Chugai who were two, um, two Brisbane Brisbane guys. Uh, and then the final member was a, a man called C. Yi Chen, uh, who was, again, from Sydney, but kind of wasn't necessarily linked with the rest of them. Yeah, and so then, the, but the whole group was so young. Uh, so Rush and Chugai were both 19 at the time, and the majority of them were in their early 20s. Then uh, the oldest was like 29. But yeah, the majority were like 19, 20, 21. Just so young and just clearly had no idea what they were doing so yeah so previously in 2004 so we're talking 2005 for the main story but in 2004 chan sakamaran lawrence and chan's girlfriend did a previous drug run from indonesia and they were successful in that drug run um and so lawrence who was part of that renee lawrence said that she was paid ten thousand dollars on her successful return uh, then, so they did that one in the previous summer, and then they attempted to do another, the next one in December. 
with the same group um but again a little bit bigger so at this point it was Chancellor Kamaram Lawrence Matthew Norman and Tanduk Nguyen so kind of half of the Bali Nine uh, they all went out in the December but it didn't go ahead uh, and we think that was probably because the heroin didn't arrive uh, from wherever it comes from in time for them to then take it back And it was alleged basically by the rest of uh, the Bali Nine that Chan and Sukumaran both threatened the families of all the other people involved in the K in this. And so in order, you know, they they agreed to do it because they were worried that they were going to go and harm their family. I find that a little bit hard to believe um, just because some of them did it multiple times and you'd think that kind of do want to get away with it i don't know i'm sure maybe they did a little bit of that but it's it wouldn't be hard to just go to the police would it and say that these people are threatening me um i'm not gonna drug smuggle so yeah believe believe what you will in that case and so yeah the group beforehand didn't really know each other um and so like the guys that were in brisbane were separate from the the sydney groups uh, but when they got to bali they stayed in the same hotel and they had some cards to communicate and they, you know, they spent a lot of time in their hotel and in their hotel rooms. It was kind of noted by the people that were surveilling them. Um, but two, but Scott Rush and Chu Guy did have a great time. They had like a full holiday um, because, well, you know, when you hear them talk, they, like I said, they were 19 and they were so naive. Like literally they were like, nah, maybe I thought that it might be drugs, but like I just didn't really think about it. And I can, I can see that. And so, yeah, prior to the flights on the final day, uh, Chan and Sukumaran strapped heroin to the bodies of uh, Scott Rush, uh, Renee Lawrence, Martin Stevens, and Michael Chugai. And they had a combined about eight and a half kilos of heroin on them, um, kind of like wrapped around their thighs and around their stomach. And so, and that was worth like millions in, in Australia. So, so they made it to the airport and actually the the police like let them get themselves through cust- like check their bags in and everything and it was only when they were at the gate um that they were like fully apprehended um and i think that they did that so as to not scare anyone else to to make sure that everyone kind of made their way through and got deep into the airport before they actually took them took them away um and yeah that was prior to being able to to get on their flights so four of them were arrested there the CE Chen, Nguyen, Norman, and Sukumaran were actually all still at the hotel and they were all arrested from the hotel itself. Um, in the hotel rooms, they found a small amount of heroin, something like 300 grams, uh, but they found lots of like strapping equipment and things to attach more to to them. And it's generally thought that they were, were still at the hotel and they were waiting for the next shipment of heroin to come in so that they could then use that to, to, to yeah, ship to those guys and then off they would go. Uh, Chan himself was actually managed to get totally on board a plane um, before they did board the plane and to arrest him. He had no drugs on him at all at the time, um, just was found with a load of mobile phones. And so... Clearly, as you can tell by that story, the Indonesian authorities were very aware of this group. Uh, they knew what who they were and what they were doing. And it soon became clear that the Australian Federal Police um, were also aware of it. And they had been the ones that had tipped off uh, the Indonesian authorities. And so... That was a very controversial thing. They were probably aware of them from uh, the previous drug runs. 
And there was also a time where um, Scott Rush's dad actually had phoned the AFP, the Australian Federal Police, and said, look, my son's going on this free trip to Bali. I'm really worried he's doing something stupid. Can you help, basically? And the AFP decided to tip off Indonesian police rather than arrest the group when they arrived in Australia. And that decision has just led to huge controversy in Australia. Um, As you can kind of expect, there's very different drug policies, drug laws, drug sentencing guidelines between the two countries. And we know could what Australia knew that they could get the death penalty for this and they still tipped them off instead of arresting them in Australia so really you know was Australia looking after its citizens rights at all no I think and I think that that's a really bad thing that the AFP did I think that they should have apprehended them in in Sydney and then they could have been arrested and and served their punishment and all of this kind of stuff and not have to face the death penalty but also like uproot nine families who now had to have and still have to spend their lives you know half and half across across two countries but yeah that that did kind of go on for a while and and lee rush scott rush's dad did take them to court and everything like that but uh, nothing's ever been taken forward in any way against them So all nine were taken to Kerabokan prison, like we said, same as Chappelle Corby. And the drug police indicated very soon on that they wanted to press charges and they wanted to press the types of charges that would result in the death penalty for all nine. Uh, So they obviously have different types of laws that they can press and they all have different types of sentences, but they said, no, we really want to get all nine and we want to give them sentences that would would, could result in the death penalty, even though... As as I said, some of them were caught directly with drugs on them. Some were just in the hotel room. Chen had nothing, was on the plane. So, you know, they were in different circumstances, but were still tried with the same types of charges. And so they all went to court. The court cases took a long time. Um, three of them were tried together. Um, it was the three that were in the hotel other than Sukumaran, and then the rest were all charged separately. And so eventually... Sukumaran and Chan were both sentenced to death for their role in organising it. So they were kind of the ones that had organised it. They thought that they had, you know, forced the rest of the Bali Nine into it. And so therefore they were more responsible. They had sourced the drugs. They had prepped it. They they knew everything, which, you know, does make sense. They were the, the masterminds in it. And then the rest were all given full life sentences. So full life sentence with no, no hope or attempt of getting out Uh, i won't go through the kind of myriad of appeals that went on after this but basically all nine did continually appeal this uh their sentences sukumaran and chan did all of those appeals and the but the death sentence was continually continually upheld um it was never reduced and the rest of the group kind of bounced about so a lot of them went down from life to 20 years but then most of them got it back up to, to life. Um, and so, and, and in one case, I think it was Scott Rush went up to death 
and then went back down to life. So they kind of bounced around all all over the place. But in general, all of the ones that kind of kept appealing ended up with life. And so it was only Renee Lawrence who, after the after the appeal that went down to 20 years, she stopped. So she ended up having it commuted and she was sentenced to 20 years. The rest, other than the two that were sentenced to death or got full life sentences. So yeah, they, again, huge media circus, media speculation around all of this. They were very young. Um, it was a similar time to Corby, like I said, and like just such seriousness in terms of the the sentences that they were getting clearly it was something that was very much popular in the media at the time and so all of the prisoners went to Kerabokan prison some of them have since moved around um but they by most of them by all of the kind of things that you can read about them have done very have done a lot of good in the prisons that they have so Kamaran spent loads of time setting up like computer labs and art classes and did a lot of teaching so he spent years teaching other inmates trying to help others and improve them he helped them set up small businesses uh, same with chan um, and same with the others they did a lot of like english classes and really supported others in the prison uh, they supported local communities yeah and then a lot of them uh, converted to christianity um, or if they were already christian uh, you know really embraced their faith and actually, at the time, for a long time when they were there, if you have money, you were able to go and visit. So people were able to get a lot of visitors in and so their families could go in and see them quite a lot. A lot of them got married um, or like had girlfriends um, throughout their, their incarceration. Uh, so yeah, it was very, like I said, it's in some accounts very horrible prison because it clearly was quite dirty and and didn't have good facilities and that type of things, but it also did have a reasonable amount of, of flexibility and freedom um, compared to compared to some others. So yeah, but in general, they they've done have done good in prison. Then Sukumaran and Chan both continued to fight their executions, and they both appealed for clemency several times. Even uh, the prison governor attested to them to not execute them and commute them to life because they had done a lot of good in the prison. Uh, but unfortunately, all of this failed um, and both of them were executed by firing squad on the 29th of April 2015, which I think is very tragic, very sad. Uh, and then for the rest of them, uh, the only one that has been released now was Renee Lawrence, who got released in 2018. Uh, Tanduk Nguyen unfortunately died of stomach cancer in the prison at the age of 34. Um, but the rest, so Chen, Rush, Norman, Stevens and Chugai are all still in prison. All still in prison in Indonesia, um, alive, still all relatively young. But yeah, all still kind of facing life sentences and the potential of, of never getting out, which I think is yeah very, very sad. And so yeah, so I say very sad. For, from my perspective, because as some um, from from my point of view, I don't believe in the like, I don't believe in the death penalty. I don't think that that should exist. It doesn't exist in the countries that I was you know that I live and that I was brought up in. So it's just never something that I I think is a good idea. And even when like I can I can, I can understand in some countries I can understand in some cases when for things like murder and you know and killing people and and that type of thing I can get there quicker to why you would then do the death penalty 
and the whole like eye for an eye you know that's like all very traditional so i can see that link but the death penalty for drugs charges i find very hard and i do like i said i I understand the argument that people put forward in terms of by smuggling these drugs and having the drugs out on the streets they are going to result in the deaths of many other people but still like it's down to other people to take those drugs you know what i mean it's not it's not that it's to me it's not the same and that's just my opinion and people will have very different ones and that's okay but for me i don't think that that should have been an option even if they were you know the organizers of it because and again like i said they were the organizers of it but i don't think they were you know in any way the criminal mastermind and i think they were probably very small small fries in a very big syndicate and actually the people that should be caught and punished badly is the people that are that are distributing it and selling it and and all of that much higher up the chain so for me i find that very hard i I do i do think that that is not not a good thing i also and i mean i support a prison charity in the uk and that's because i fundamentally believe that people can be rehabilitated and can do good even after they have done bad and so the fact that they did all go on to to support and to help a lot of people i think shows that and that is why prison is there for me because you go to prison and you rehabilitate and then you come out the other side but like i said um it's i know it's a very controversial and very hard hard arena to to kind of talk about and to to understand and I would love to hear from you guys what what you think whether you think that they should have got death and whether you think that the the guy should still still be in prison I mean I think I said it before but they were 19 you just don't know anything at that age I just think it's very sad so yeah so that's the two cases what we, I, <laughs> I wrote <laughs> my notes aren't very good I wrote what we learned and then it's just one bullet point that says don't smuggle drugs so there you are uh don't don't that I mean that's a fundamental thing that came from all of this don't do it if you don't do it you won't get in this case um and maybe i reckon that this this and another few cases around the time has resulted in like general paranoia of bags um i feel like after this it was like all of the you know bags being like wrapped in in cling film basically to make sure that no one puts anything in them and it definitely to be fair has has made me more worried like i'll definitely you know lock my bags up a bit more so yeah what we learned don't smuggle drugs uh lock your bags there you go. Two key facts for us to 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 learn. So, in terms of references, I actually didn't read anything for this. Mainly because I started like can't remember. So I recommend yes, so I started with have listened to a lot of podcasts because I was on holiday and I listened to the Red Handed. They did an episode called Hotel K which was about the prison and that was very good and they mentioned the Barley Nine in there. Um, I'm sure you listen to Red Handed. If you don't, then I'd be very shocked <laughs> if you listen to this and don't listen to them. Uh, but yeah, so that's what I started with. I started with that and then I basically ended up in like a podcast rabbit hole and then I decided to do an episode on it. So yes, all my recommendations are basically podcasts. So for Chabelle Corby, I recommend an episode of the podcast called The Zest is History. Uh, season one episode 14 they talk about Chappelle Corby and I very much enjoyed that uh, episode and they cover it in a lot of detail for the Bali Nine I really got into Australian podcasts um, I recommend a podcast called The Fair Dinkum Freaks and they did it's a load of Tasmanian guys talking about Australian stuff and they did two a two-part series on Bali Nine and I thought it was very 
good and they've covered the people involved in a lot more detail than I've been able to today. Um, so yes, I really recommend that you listen to that one. And then yeah, the Red Handed Hotel K one as well. And then I'm also going to link a YouTube documentary that I watched, which was like a 45 minute documentary where they uh, interview Sukumaran and Chan when they were in uh, Karabokan prison. So it was it's quite a few years old, obviously, before they were executed. But it's when they were doing still doing their clemency appeals. And it shows a lot of the prison and it shows a lot of what they were doing in the prison and what they thought and how they were kind of handling it and their families at the time. And like I say, like their families are, are, are what I feel awful for because not only are your loved ones locked up, but, you know, it's so far away and they can't can't be there with them. So, yeah, it's a really good documentary. It's only, yeah, like I say, it's only 40 minutes. Um, so do give that a go. Yeah, I think that's it. Cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to this. Um, please do, like I say, follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. Or if you're not on the gram but you want to chat, then you can email me when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Um, always up for suggestions. 